Ranieri and Co. This episode contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. We're joined today by the seven members of the Loft uh, Hacker Think Tank in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On May 19, 1998, the US Senate held its first hearing into cybersecurity. It was titled, Weak Computer Security in Government, Is the Public at Risk? And they invited a hacker group, LOFT, L0PHT, to speak. Chairman Fred Thompson from Tennessee. Uh, Due to the sensitivity of the work done at the LOFT, they'll be using their hacker names of Mudge, Weld, Brian Oblivion, Kingpin, Space Rogue, Tan, and Stefan. Gentlemen. (laughs) As we've seen in the last few episodes, hackers were finding their way into government, military, and research institutions with ease, and it took governments a while to take their activities seriously. This hearing is a pivotal moment when they did. I hope my grandkids don't ask me who my witnesses were today and (laughs) say Space Rogue. Loft, or Loft Heavy Industries, were a group of hackers set up in the early 90s in Boston. They researched and published computer security advisories and revealed system vulnerabilities. They were into open source, sharing information, exploring, learning, classic hacker stuff. But they claimed to be on the other side of the law to groups like The Realm and Legions of Doom. Loft looked like a 90s metal band, not the normal suits you'd expect at a Senate hearing. We appreciate your being with us. May I ask your name in the middle? I'm Mudge. Mudge sat in the middle, goatee beard, round spectacles and lots of hair. Author, open source programmer, guitarist and Frank Zappa fan. Mudge, would you like to make a statement? Yes, I would. Mudge's real name is Peter Zatko. In 2020, Twitter hired him as head of security. Thank you very much for having us here. We think this is hopefully a very great step forward and uh, are thrilled that that the government in general is is starting to approach the hacker community. Um, We think there's a tremendous asset. Loft were white hats. That is, the good guys. Hackers who exploit flaws in computer systems and then notify the administrators. Nowadays, people like this are hired as penetration testers by companies wanting to secure their systems. Criminal or malicious hackers are called black hats. But despite Loft's good intentions, companies didn't like hearing from them. Unfortunately, many times they would not improve the software until we actually went public with the findings. Companies do indeed want to ignore problems as long as possible. Uh, It's cheaper for them. For the next hour, Loft members took turns laying down some home truths about the internet. If you think that you're an exception to the norm and that you have a secure setup that communicates over the internet, uh, you're probably mistaken. Furthermore, if you feel that the government is giving you access to the enabling technology you need to combat this problem, you're wrong yet again. Then, this bombshell. I'm informed that you uh, think that within 30 minutes, the seven of you could uh, make the internet unusable for the entire nation. Is that correct? That's correct. Actually, one of us with just a few packets. We've we've told a few agencies about this. Uh, It's kind of funny because... We think that this is something that the various government agencies should be actively going after. We know the department... Ultimately, the message the Loft hackers delivered to the government was that nothing's safe. Do you think there is a system can be designed that would be 
foolproof that we could use for defense and for uh, key elements such as the Northeast grid or our Federal Reserve or whatever? Is it possible to design a foolproof system? Space Rogue took this one. I don't think it's possible to design a foolproof system, but I don't think that should be the goal. Um, the more difficult you make it, the less risk that you uh, assume from summoning a foreign nation state or a teenage kid from breaking into that system. Interesting that Space Rogue equated the threat from a state to that of a teenage kid. And listening to this almost a quarter of a century later, well, it wasn't as if governments weren't warned about state hacking. I have one more question. I'm curious if a foreign government was able to assemble a group of gentlemen such as yourself and paid them large amounts of money and got them in here or hired them here to wreak as much havoc on this government as they could in terms of infrastructure, the governmental operations, whatever. How much damage could they do? <laughs> Just in case you missed that, the loft hacker told the hearing you'd be in trouble. One of the senators then thanked the hacker group for coming in and explaining that the emperor has no clothes. You can see another strong hacker ethic coming through here too, that information should be free in order to keep us safe and share everything. Governments usually don't think that way. We know the Department of Defense just did a very large investigation into what's known as denial of service attacks against the infrastructure. We contributed a large portion of the information to that actual investigation. Much to our chagrin, the learnings from it were instantly classified which we were giving them largely public information. Computer hacking had certainly come a long way since the wankworm and the simple password-cracking programs of the 80s. Encryption, copyright, personal freedom, information sharing became the new battleground. A battleground which attracted a new group of people, the cypherpunks. Cypher as in code, an algorithm to decode encryption, and punk as in dystopian, futuristic, and a fair bit of anti-establishment. Cypherpunks politicised computing an entirely new movement, neither left nor right on the political dial, perhaps a bit of each and then some. From ultra-free market libertarians to left-leaning liberals, they were all here. The cypherpunk movement had a profound impact on Julian Assange, profound. The cypherpunk manifesto in the famous line says that cypherpunks write code. Julian Assange liked codes. In the international subversive magazine years before, he wrote, Codes, man. If you want them, then this is your love tool. <laughs> Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. This is Motherlode, a Rainierian co-production. I'm Greg Muller. I've been looking into computer hacking and the politicisation of the internet from my hometown of Melbourne, Australia. Loading episode six, cypherpunks. The idea that information needs to be free was a strong hacker ethic in the 90s. 
we saw the realm and international subversives always willing to share their knowledge. Maybe not with authorities, for sure, but who they saw as worthy. Back then, it was hacking techniques, password-cracking programs, or military telephone prefixes, things like that. But now, with the encroachment of big corporations scrambling to copyright software and increased government surveillance on the internet, this idea of sharing shifted up a gear. This new group demanded free access to encryption to ensure privacy online, or the open-source software movement free to use and download. Access to this level of information was certainly a threat to the status quo. Corporate business models could be threatened, government's dirty laundry anonymously revealed for all to see, and with high-level encryption, law enforcement unable to find the crims. Two things, encryption and copyright were were two aspects. Computer-savvy people were starting to organise around these issues. My name is Justin Warren and I'm a board member of Electronic Frontiers Australia. The EFA was founded in the early 1990s as an organisation promoting digital rights in Australia. It started three years after the Electronic Frontier Foundation in the US, a group whose mission is to ensure that technology supports freedom, justice and innovation for all people of the world. I think it all kind of grew out of the hacker movement in a way. There is a lot in common with the hacker ethos in the friendly sense of people who like finding out how stuff works, are interested in information and hacker in that sense means more like inventor or tinkerer and it's only really taken on darker overtones from the response from law enforcement at the time or the the powers that be. You think of a computer hacker now and it usually conjures up someone doing something malicious. But this wasn't always the case. It wasn't about criming. It wasn't about trying to gain something for yourself at the expense of everyone else. It was about providing access to information that was being kept secret and making it available to everyone. But there were limits, which this new movement was struggling with. The whole idea of information wants to be free, treated all information as equal, and that information about government nefariousness, in in the sort of transparency and whistleblower sense, was treated the same as providing everyone access to a woman's personal home address. And I think there was a certain a certain naivety based on who was in in the movement then, which was largely technical white men who were... uh, Naive is probably the kind interpretation. Intellectual property was a hot issue too. The way hackers saw it, large computer companies were starting to copyright people's computer skills, owning their code, and by extension their thoughts and ideas. And for a libertarian, this was too much. Copyright was a big one because we just had the Sonny Bono Copyright Act, which extended copyright terms. Justin is referring to what is officially called the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998. This legislation lengthened the term of copyright in the US to the life of the author, plus another 70 years, and 120 years for works with corporate authorship. This is the antithesis of the information-should-be-free ethos. It was also known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because it meant the earliest Mickey Mouse movies would not enter public domain until 2019. Cartoon-based mice uh, were very keen on maintaining access to exclusive ownership of, of certain copyrighted works, which would have otherwise entered into the public domain and become public culture. The point which so offended the emerging computer community was that copyright and ownership of culture could rest in too few hands. 
This applies to software too, which was a motivator for what became known as the open source software movement. So open source means that you can look at the original source code, the programming language that computer programs are built from. So all computer programs are basically just numbers. And computers understand the numbers, but humans aren't very good at them. And particularly when they're just long strings of ones and zeros that that mean something to a computer, they don't mean anything to you and me. Programming languages are translated into this machine language, which is is cool, which is the numbers. Um, The programming languages are easier to read for humans. They're basically just a crutch for we poor human flesh bags to be able to instruct our silicon masters um, to do our bidding. And having access to the source code, the biggest thing from that is you can learn how the computer works for yourself and you can change the way it works to suit your own circumstances better. And that's really at the heart of open source was the idea that you should be able to have control over your own computer and make it do things that the manufacturer didn't necessarily want you to do or even think of. You should be able to tinker with it. Julian Assange was one of the early contributors to the open source software called NetBSD. It's an open source operating system. He claimed his motivation for being part of NetBSD was building something out of the love of creation and intellectual competition. And in his own words, we put the OS in orgasm. But when people involved in the creation of it were asked to sign a legal contract, a foundation membership agreement, Assange started to distance himself. He wrote in his blog, The contract, as well as being an instrument of the state, is written in the demeaning language of the corporate state. It should have been written in the language of our programmer world. Open source was reviled. Um, I mean, it was actively fought against by Microsoft at the time. It was a big stoush. It was there was the open source side of things, which was driving the internet in a lot of ways. Um, Sun Microsystems was at the heart of a lot of that free software openness idea, and that was a Silicon Valley, Bay Area kind of uh, libertarian ethos that drove the dot-com boom. In 1993, Assange ran the Victorian arm of Suburbia.net, Australia's first public access internet provider. It provided free internet to numerous activist groups, community groups, artists, and even private investigators. The early, well, the late 90s web was built on open source, and, and the web browser as well, so we had the browser wars with Microsoft versus Netscape. That was interwoven with, I guess, the feeling of being on the open source side of things or the rebelliousness side of things. You had the traditional corporate world trying to extend its control and its, its tentacles into this new thing that was trying to break free from that old world. And it's, it's interesting sitting back looking at it from 20 years hence and going, yeah, the tentacles won. And then there's encryption. Without encryption, we wouldn't have the internet we have today. Most of the web is encrypted now. And part of that is because it protects your information in transit. And a lot of that, it protects commercial transactions, which is how the modern internet came to be. Similarly, what if you wanted to, say, protect your identity before leaking sensitive material to a journalist, for example? This ability to harness encryption was a powerful tool. So it was seen as being too dangerous to be in the hands of civilians. And this led to what's now known as the Crypto Wars of 1995. Strong encryption was classed as ammunition, so it was illegal to export strong encryption from the US. They'd let us have weak encryption. The cypherpunks were threatening to put powerful encryption in the hands of anyone who wanted it. To many governments, 
this was a problem. So encryption was seen in, at that level, and this is in a, a country which you know, has a Second Amendment that wants you to arm bears. And in, even in that country, they were so against strong encryption that they wanted to make it illegal to export. Um, and there was a bit of a stunt by the inventors of um, PGP, Phil Zimmerman. PGP encryption stands for pretty good privacy. Phil Zimmerman was a computer scientist and cryptographer, and he was concerned that the internet made privacy a thing of the past. But the answer was not going off grid. It was strong encryption. So they figured out there was a loophole, or they asserted there was a loophole to this law, that if you printed the source code to PGP, which is a strong encryption framework, if you printed that into a book, you could export the book, and that would be legal. And so they did that, and then they, re, uh, they scanned the pages of that book using optical character recognition, recompiled it, and voila, uh, strong encryption had escaped from the United States. So even then there was this kind of cheeky playfulness about trying to thumb your nose at, at authority a bit to say, you know, you're not the boss of me. Public key cryptography solved the age-old problem of how to share secrets between two people who have never met, thereby eliminating the need for trust. There's the public key cryptographers that advocated for the release of cryptography, which is a key component of a lot of the cypherpunk tools. They see cryptography as the transformative weapon that is going to enable them to create their own systems and societal systems. That's Kelsey Nabin from RMIT in Melbourne. She specialises in peer-to-peer digital technologies and describes cypherpunks as a counterculture movement which was at its peak in the 1990s and early 2000s. And this group was interested in taking political action through digital means, so using technology to pursue political goals. Those goals are most commonly articulated as sort of cyber libertarianism and ideas around individual freedom, freedom from government surveillance and coercion. So open source and the hacker movement folds into these ideas around resilience through redundancy and distribution of resources. And the cypherpunks kind of pick up on that. So their code is open source. Anyone can view it, verify it, adapt it, modify it. Zulet Dreyfus says this movement was a big influence. The cypherpunk movement had a profound impact on Julian Assange, profound. So first of all, he had always been an outsider in his life because he's very gifted intellectually. And therefore, he suddenly found this community of like-minded, super smart, super technical people who thought a lot about philosophy. But the second way I think that it had an impact on his life was developing both philosophy and tool and tools hand in hand. So the idea of you live the philosophy by building the tools and that as a computer programmer, you have the capability of building those tools. You know, if you want to build the Taj Mahal to make a statement, most people can't do that because they don't have that capability. Uh, And so I think he was very attracted to that self-sufficiency. And it's not hard to see the fingerprints of cypherpunk all over WikiLeaks. This movement politicised computing and networks. Timothy C. May is one of the best-known cypherpunks, but he's obviously operating as one of the co-founders of the cypherpunks mailing list. A former chief scientist at Intel and retired at 34, May was an unofficial spokesman for the cypherpunk mailing list. 
Originally from California, he also wrote the crypto-anarchist manifesto in 1988. It begins like this. A spectre is haunting the modern world, the spectre of crypto-anarchy. It's about two pages long, and talks of an anonymous computerised market which will enable complete strangers to interact, exchange messages, trade, negotiate contracts, etc. The ultimate free market, no government intrusion at all. This includes government interference in economic transactions as well, paving the way for cryptocurrencies. Combined with emerging information markets, crypto-anarchy will create a liquid market for any and all material which can be put into words and pictures. And just as a seemingly minor invention like barbed wire made possible the fencing off of vast ranches and farms, thus altering forever the concepts of land and property rights in the frontier west. So too, will the seemingly minor discovery out of an arcane branch of mathematics come to be the wire clippers which dismantle the barbed wire around intellectual property? Tim May was fiercely private. He once told a US journalist, My political philosophy is keep your hands off my stuff, out of my office, off what I eat, drink and smoke. If people want to overdose, say la vie, schadenfreude. Arise, you have nothing to lose but your barbed wire fences. So he had very strong kind of libertarian roots and strong ambitions to build the cypherpunk group into this kind of crypto-anarchist movement. And so he saw it as a real social, political and economic revolution. Another co-founder of The Mining List was Eric Hughes, also based in Silicon Valley at the time. I have a motto, which is always play to win. And so I want to focus on the things that were most successful, because that's the real goal. That's Eric delivering the opening address at the crypto party in Amsterdam in 2012. His speech was titled, Putting the Personal Back in Personal Computers. I had a motto that was that Cypherpunks is not the Hacker Privacy League which is to say we're not writing privacy tools for ourselves, we're writing it for everybody else. Eric answered Tim May's manifesto with one of his own in 1993, the cypherpunk manifesto. Information does not just want to be free, it longs to be free. Incidentally, the term cypherpunk was actually coined by Hughes's girlfriend, Jude Millen, or St Jude as she was better known. Jude was a coder and programmer, an advocate for women hackers. Information expands to fill the available storage space. Information is rumor's younger, stronger cousin. Information is fleeter of foot, has more eyes, knows more, and understands less than rumor. I've heard this manifesto referred to as a call to arms, but Kelsey Nabin sees it differently. I see it as a call to responsibility in many ways. Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. We cannot expect governments, corporations, or other large, faceless organizations to grant us privacy. One thing I admire about the cypherpunks is their digital literacy. So the cypherpunk manifesto in the famous line says that cypherpunks write code. Cypherpunks write code. We know that someone has to write software to defend privacy, and since we can't get privacy unless we all do, we're going to write it. We publish our code so that our fellow cypherpunks may practice and play with it. Our code is free for all to use worldwide. And so what that means is you're not just a consumer of the systems that govern society, you're actually responsible for them. And what this cohort and generations of engineers before them and cryptographers before them saw was the digital age, the digital era. So with the introduction of the internet, the way that 
information and society operated would drastically change, the way that economics operated would drastically change, the way that politics operated would drastically change. The cypherpunks were actually very pragmatic about not just foreseeing this change, but saying the only way to cope with the information age is by being digitally literate and actually being able to read and write your own software code. The heart of the freedom of the cypherpunk movement is a levelling of the power relationship between the individual and the state, or the individual and the corporation, so that it's not so lopsided. So in that way, I think it's very responsible in a lot of ways, although it is kind of revolutionary compared with the systems that we have, which is, you know, trust authorities and trust your computer and, you know, the private applications and software that, you know, profit-making companies are are designing and and you're the consumer of, which we've seen in Web 2.0 has gone very wrong in a lot of ways and had enormous social consequences. Web 1.0 was before the internet, pre-90s, when it was just research institutions and military networks. Web 2.0 refers to the internet we have now, easy to use, self-generated material, all stored in central locations. That is, read what you see and consume it, social media, wikis, etc. Web 3.0 is Bitcoin, decentralised technology and more read-write. Everyone would be able to not only consume, but create and participate. That's the future. The cypherpunk movement began as a mailing list. Eric Hughes, Timothy C. May and another online activist, John Gilmore, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation were key members. They'd meet up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Together, they started the cypherpunk mailing list in 1992, and by 1994, it had 700 subscribers. As a guide to what they were into, Tim May would sign off his posts with this. Crypto anarchy, encryption, digital money, anonymous networks, digital pseudonyms, zero knowledge, reputations, information markets, black markets, collapse of governments. National borders are just speed bumps on the information superhighway. Julian Assange was a regular visitor and started posting in 1995 under the pseudonym Prof. He even posted extracts from Sulet Dreyfus's book Underground. However, he left out the fact that he was one of the main hackers in the book, Mendax. It wasn't well known then. He also didn't mention that he was a co-author. Assange would sign off his posts with a quote attributed to President Nixon. If you think the United States has stood still, who built the largest shopping centre in the world? These posts are archived online now, and I spent a few days reading through them. One post in particular caught my eye. It's from Prof on the 7th of March, 1996. It instantly looked familiar. It was 10 lines of ASCII art in the shape of four capital letters, L-A-C-C. And underneath it said, Legal Aspects of Computer Crime. In the same way, Wank appeared as 10 lines of ASCII art and explained underneath as worms against nuclear killers. Stylistically similar, maybe, but not enough to point the finger at Assange for the wankworm. Underneath was written, Send in a brief synopsis of who you are and why you are interested in computer crime. This helps provide a sense of the LACC community. When Assange posted this message, he was in the middle of his court case for the hacking offences related to international subversives. 
About this time, Assange also clashed swords with the Church of Scientology. In a post calling people to attend a protest outside the church's Melbourne headquarters, he wrote, The internet is by its very nature a censorship-free zone. The fight against the church is far more than the net versus a bunch of wackos. It is about corporate suppression of the internet and free speech. It is about intellectual property and the big and rich versus the small and smart. The battle started with this guy. I'm David Gerrard. These days, I'm a financial journalist writing about cryptocurrency and why blockchain is stupid. David wanted to set up an anti-Scientology website. This is how he came into contact with Julian Assange. I was part of the crew in the 90s who uh, decided that Scientology were acting like dicks on the internet and had to be taught a lesson. (laughs) So they had come on to a Usenet news group called alt.religion.scientology. And there was a guy on there who was an ex-Scientologist who was telling all this stuff about them. And they mounted a massive copyright raid on his house in uh, late 94, early 95, something like that. This then aroused the ire of every self-righteous, freedom-loving internet nerd because those um, freedom of the internet ideas were well as part of the air at the time. We all rose up. Um, appalled and horrified that someone might take away our right to say fuck to perfect strangers. So we um, promptly started dissecting every single fact about Scientology and talking about them and so on. Um, I got in trouble with my university administration for this because I was using my uni account. And so I went, right, you understand this means war. So... I had heard about this site called Suburbia, which was a Melbourne site who had very strong free speech ideals. So I emailed the guy running it, some young fellow called Julian Assange, and I said, so I've got this thing I want to do, a webpage about Scientology. It is absolutely certain that this is going to be trouble. And he answered something like, sounds good, let's give it a go. Suburbia.net was a free public service internet provider. Assange once called it a low-cost, power-to-the-people, enabling technology. For about four years there, he was getting, like, legal threats, private investigators coming around investigating him. I will say that he stood by me absolutely reliably for that time in what most people consider quite trying circumstances. I think that's both because we both had the sort of inclination of being the sort of person who responds to any slight whatsoever is bring it on. You know, neither of us knew how to back down. To host a site which takes on big organisations is risky. You need... Titanium balls. Because frankly, he did. Depleted uranium nutsack. It was incredible. Remember, in December 1996, Assange was sentenced in the Melbourne County Court for his hacking activities. We heard about this in the last episode. On the night after his sentence, Assange was on the cypherpunk mailing list at two in the morning. He posted an article by American journalist Eric Margolis titled Revenge of Her Majesty's Spooks. It was about espionage and military-industrial spying. The Australian judge who told Assange earlier that day to keep a low profile wouldn't have been impressed. A lot of what's on the cypherpunk mailing list is pretty serious stuff, like encryption regulations, computer crime laws in various countries, and philosophical discussions about freedom and privacy on the internet. 
This information is used by pre-mail, a remailer chaining and PGP. He has no obligation to produce CFS for free, let alone a version for dummies. And boy, Electronic surveillance and related technologies, packet sniffers are a form of surveillance, are cheap by comparison to physical surveillance. There's technical arguments. As someone who has hacked away at CFS for a long time now on several platforms, including Linux, I can state that the issues of porting CFS... ...is away from having two chips when one will suffice. Thus, the Macintosh 840AB and 660AB had a Motorola 68040 and a Motorola 56000 DSP chip for speech processing and recognition, sound processing, etc. A fair bit of politics... When Congress passed the internet censorship law known as the Communications Decency Act early last year... ...protecting electronic health information, report by the National Academy of Sciences. There is quite a lot of crypto discussion... Made approximately 60% didn't the feudal vassals only pay 33%? To paraphrase, I forget which presidential candidate. Are you better off than you were a thousand years ago? Not always respectful. We will be in control of the puny little lives of people such as yourself. Why don't you read some of his papers before you show your technical and social ignorance? Get a life. And like any mailing list, not always on topic. Take this exchange in December 1995. Laura and Bill were having a housewarming party in California and they invited people on the mailing list. There were complicated directions of how to get to the house and a map drawn out of ASCII code. And then this note. The price of condo living. There is no guest parking in the complex and the party must end by 10pm. Please help us get along with our new neighbours by respecting the condo rules. Thanks. Prof, with his dry Australian sense of humour, replied, from Australia. That's not a party. That's an after-school Tupperware get-together. Cheers. It's always difficult to explain a political movement, especially one based on individual freedom, because, well, it stands to reason, there's just so many individual interpretations. One idea was the assassination market, the brainchild of cypherpunk Jim Bell. It worked like this. Someone places a bet on the time, date and location of someone's death. A politician most likely, but not necessarily. For obvious reasons, the person most likely to win this bet is the person who did the murder. Payment would be in a cryptocurrency and all communication would be encrypted. This means the identity of the killer would only be known to the killer. There's no evidence, however, that Assange was ever part of this. Jim explains his idea in a mailing list post on September 1996. My system, if allowed to work, will replace the current political system with one that is far more attractive. Eliminate all governments, militaries, taxes. Bell thought his idea could end wars. It would be unnecessary to get the country into misguided but popular wars, because anybody who wanted to war with some external enemy need merely kill him by individual donation. War as we have known it, a collective decision that is binding on all citizens, whether or not they approve, would simply not exist. And would be self-regulating, first at the community level. If it does catch on, I hope that most of the public will have enough sense and decency not to pay for murdering people who don't deserve it, so assassins will find more of a market for killing people who do. And then in the courts. No prosecutor would dare file charges, and no judge would hear the case because there would always be room for one or two more. Bell imagined a world where dictators and despots would be bumped off by crypto-funded assassins. No more governments, no more borders, no more taxes, no more holocausts, no more wars, no more politicians. Forever and ever and ever. It's fair to say, though, not many cypherpunks shared Bell's vision. 
Bell is more than a few cards short of a full deck. By resorting to violence, you are no better than the ones you purport to protect us against. I'm not sure that your assassination politics trip is the worst piece of tripe I've ever seen on the list. But it does demonstrate the kind of philosophical, free market, libertarian debate which was going on. The idea that cryptography was a powerful political tool and could change society united the cypherpunks. Most of the ideas thrown around on the cypherpunk mailing list, such as assassination politics, stayed as just that, ideas on the mailing list. However, one piece of software written in 1997, here in Melbourne, was both a nod to cypherpunk ideology and a hint of what was to come. It was written by Sulek Dreyfus and Julian Assange. I worked with a set of open source early internet pioneer coders on projects, and one of those projects was Rubber Hose, also known as Maratuku. The ancient Arcadian god of protection. And that was with Julian Assange and also a German crypto engineer coder who was a friend. Cryptographer Ralph Weinman. And that was a pretty innovative piece of software. The basic idea behind Rubber Hose was to protect human rights workers who were exposing abuses by making torturing them for information pointless. It provided deniable encryption. That is, only someone with the cryptographic key had access. So uh, I travelled to Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Guatemala and I interviewed people working in human rights there, local human rights groups, about how they gathered data of human rights abuses, how they stored it, whether it was secure, and kind of had these fairly harrowing stories from them of going to mountain villages and taking a dozen first-hand reports of atrocities of mass murder or rape or whatever that had been conducted by militia. And then they would have to smuggle it by walking two or three days through mountains and taking buses and such to get back to the capital city and then find a way to sort safely and then get the data out of the country. So it could be analysed and reported on. Sulet, Julian and Ralph wanted to protect these people. You can see where this is going, right? Moving information around that is digital, untraceable and anonymous. So what Rubber Hose did that was special is it allowed you to have a storage device like a hard drive and you could encrypt data on it, but you could encrypt data on it in many layers and you couldn't see the other layers unless you had the password to them. Now, why was that important? Because if you're a human rights worker in Guatemala avoiding... Um, the militias and you're stopped and you've got this in your bag, you can have an attack that's known in cryptography circles as the rubber hose attack, which is where the person is coerced by being beaten with a rubber hose to give their password. And with that, the sensitive data on the hard drive. Now, with this, you could give the password to some data that was on the drive that was not sensitive data. And there was no mathematical way of proving that the other data existed on the drive, which meant that you could not only secure it, you could hide it. Which meant there was no way of knowing if the person was holding out or not. Therefore, no point torturing them. We believed it was the first time that this deniable crypto file storage system had been built anywhere in the world and certainly made freely available to the public. And it was pretty innovative. A large part of it was actually made right here in Victoria. 
In a document called The Idiot Savant's Guide to Rubber Hose, Sulet writes, We hope that rubber hose will both protect your data and offer a broader kind of protection for people who take risks for just causes. I sort of organised an intense work fest and it was like shifts, you know, you just... I'd come out of my room in this house that we were staying in and, you know, find one member of the team, like, face-planted asleep on their keyboard of their laptop and with earphones still on. And I remember once lifting up the earphones and just hearing this, like, death metal thrash music coming out of it, and yet still he slept there in the living room, you know, with his, with his laptop on the table... I tried to organize this to try and have at least like dinner together as a group. So we were all on different time zones. I, I was on the time zone when the sun was up. <laughs> Just like old times, keeping hacker hours. It was pretty neat to do this thing. And it was a, a pretty great feeling to not only work on something that was so cutting edge, but that had such an important purpose. Because what was happening at that exact moment around the world was and it was and it was an imperceptible shift at first but it was very powerful was that the the power of a personal computer being able to do data analysis just a spreadsheet just a database program shifted the power balance between human rights workers and oppressive regimes why is that if you can show patterns of behavior that it's systemic, it changes the nature of the argument and therefore the accountability. There was another key element to rubber hose. It prioritised the group's message over the individual. So if someone's being interrogated, tortured, and they want to give in, then there's no way of convincing the torturers that they have divulged all the information. Assange wrote about rubber hose on the cypherpunk mailing list. When a member of a group who uses conventional cryptography to protect secrets is rubber-hosed, they have two choices. One, defecting by divulging keys in order to save themselves at the cost of selling the other individuals in the group down the river. Or two, staying loyal, protecting the group and in the process subjugating themselves to continued torture. Staying loyal to the cause was paramount. With Muratuku-style deniable cryptography, the benefits to the individual derived from choosing tactic one are largely eliminated. Individuals that are otherwise loyal to the group will realise this and choose tactic two. The cypherpunk mailing list remained active throughout the 1990s, growing to an estimated 2,000 users. The discussions on these pages were clearly an influence on WikiLeaks. Kelsey Nabin. I absolutely see the links between the cypherpunk movement and Assange. So you have people that are tech literate that are then going to go build and do things to create the kind of internet age that they want. And so for Assange, this is one where, to the old adage, like, information wants to be free, like, information is free, and people have access to information and the ability to read and write that, and also a censorship-resistant information platform that can't be rewritten by others or, or by a kind of centralising force. So Assange, Assange's ideas about intellectual property and information are largely shared with a lot of the kind of ethos and ideology of the cypherpunk's mailing list. So the idea that information should be open, open access, open, open source, was shared with the list. And the idea that 
decentralised control of common goods is really important. Really important, as it turned out. Fast forward a few years and remember that WikiLeaks has no headquarters, no phones to tap, no offices to raid. This is what decentralised control looks like. So in reaction to, I guess, the idea that information on the internet can be censored is the idea that we all collectively own and have responsibility for information and thus we should all be able to contribute and co-author facts and definitions. The cypherpunk mining list pioneered a lot of ideas, which at the time seemed anti-establishment, slightly off-grid and anarchic, but now appear pretty mainstream. The obvious one is cryptocurrencies. Another innovation that comes out of the list is Bitcoin, which is decentralised peer-to-peer digital cash. There's also encryption of online financial transactions, which we now use every day. Peer-to-peer file sharing of MP3s, which became Napstar. And when that was shut down with a $20 billion lawsuit, there was BitTorrent, which was created by another regular on the cypherpunk mining list, Bram Cohen. BitTorrent was also peer-to-peer file sharing, but unlike Napster, was decentralised. There's also encrypted messaging platforms. David Gerard. There's a good history of people who are um, serious um, cryptographers who want to turn it to social good. Signal is possibly one of the most successful pieces of software along these lines because its cryptography is good. The way it works is obviously sensible if you know how this stuff works. Signal is a popular encrypted instant messaging service. But it's usable by people who can't work computers. For instance, your average journalist. Having something that works for nerds and works for non-nerds, if you get those two audiences, you have the perfect software. Next time on Motherload, we look at what ultimately led to the creation of WikiLeaks and what this meant for governments, politics, the media, and democracy. To radically shift regime behaviour, we must think clearly and boldly. For if we have learned anything, it is that regimes do not want to be changed. But his entire attitude was basically, I'm a hacker, I have these powers, how can I use my powers for good? Yeah, well, you know, it changed journalism. It was a radical form of muckraking, and it was motivated driven by a band of technically sophisticated activists led by a rather charismatic figure. This is Motherlode, a Rainierian co-production. Researched and written by me, Greg Muller. Executive producer is Lucy Kent. Sound design and editing by Martin Peralta. Consulting producer, Javon McHugh. Thanks for listening and please subscribe to Motherlode to make sure you get the next episode. And leave a review if you can. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at motherlode at ranierianco.com. 